Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,111. If you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest calling in from across the pond, as we say, Nick Skeens. Nick, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I reckon I am, yes. All right. Nick Skeens is a freelance journalist who lives on a barge that he helped build in Burnham on Crouch in Essex in the United Kingdom. He's an author who started writing about creativity for the UK's Design Council covering subjects ranging from design education to creative thinking. He is the co-author of Future Present, Creative Island, and Creative Island 2, books that celebrated British design genius by focusing on the creative process. His latest book, the one we'll be talking about today, The Perfect Car by Evro Publishing, is a biography of the incredible John Bernard, who revolutionized motorsports across the world. Bernard introduced aerospace technology to the sport and designed game-changing innovations, such as the first use of carbon fiber monocoque chassis with McLaren and the paddle-shifted semi-automatic gearbox with Ferrari. Nick's past also includes time as a news editor and producer in the world of television. So, Nick, I've told our listeners just a little tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little more about your career and, and an obvious passion for automobiles? Yeah, sure. I um, start. I went to university at, in Exeter, where I studied English language, then uh, traveled to the Middle East, where I became a journalist. I was living in Beirut at the time, at the height of the Civil War. And then uh, when I came out of there, I was working in journalism and got myself a scoop in which I discovered that there were 22 Brits and four Americans on a uh, Kuwait Airways jumbo jet in 1988. Two passengers were murdered, sadly. And it was a pretty traumatic uh, time, uh, but that basically propelled me into television news where I worked for uh, six or seven years. I did a little bit of work even for CNN International, so a slight American connection there. Mm -hmm. Then I went to freelance as a a writer, started specializing in creativity and design. Didn't have much of a passion for cars, I must confess, until I I did a story about uh, a carbon fiber expert uh, who created this beautiful table and discovered that the man behind it was John Barnard, who, as mm. you said in your introduction, revolutionized Formula One. And it was from there that I had this vertical learning curve uh, help, uh, and I started to learn about cars and write about them. Very cool. Well, this is a magnificent book. And before I jump into the first question here, though, I've got to ask, because I look at journalism and journalists who go into the heat of the action, if you will, that go off to to civil war zones, war zones, uh, areas of strife, and so forth. What on earth inspires you to go do that? Uh, To me, it seems it would be so frightening to walk into that kind of situation. I just, I love the character of somebody that can go do something like this. So for you, what was it about you after university to go off and Put yourself in that position. Well, I, I fell in love with my, my wife, my former, sadly, my ex-wife now, but uh, she was living in Beirut near the mm. American embassy, which had just been bombed. And when I first met her, she was telling me about this, and she seemed so unruffled. I was deeply impressed. 
And I was a fairly adventurous soul. I think I probably lacked imagination. It's, uh, once you've been in a war zone and covered some of that stuff, you begin to realize that this is not an adventure. This is something that needs to be reported. And you start right. looking at it in a different way. But, and you have tremendous respect for the soldiers who put themselves in the line of fire. And I was in Beirut at the time with American forces and British forces and French and Italian. And it was a pretty frightening place to be. And I was always um, impressed by the way in which the soldiers and the forces handled it. And in time, I learned to relax among bombardments and shell fire and stuff like that. Not, not that you ever can relax, but to realize that the odds were reasonably good that you weren't going to get killed. Wow. I guess in the beginning, though, it was love that took you into the danger zone, if you will. Almost sounds like a song or <laughs> lyrics for somebody. But uh, yeah, that, that thing, love, that can do a lot of things for us. It can uh, draw us into all sorts of dangerous areas. Absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah, so Nick, take the wheel. I like the quote from Albert Einstein in which he says, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Uh, and, and I've used that as a guide in my writing, that uh, if I'm writing about technology, I must explain it so a child can understand it, because then I know that I understand it. And there's a second one in the same vein from Wittgenstein, who says, everything that can be said, can be said clearly. And if a lot of writers, if writers took that to heart more often, it would be easier to read books about motorsport. You know, I think you're right. And I'm so glad that you take that to heart because a lot of times you'll read books that involve technology and technology and motorsport. And you have to read a sentence three or four times and then go Google what the heck are they talking about there. And exactly. then you then you feel like you're a little bit of a dumbo, like, why didn't I know that? And uh, and so forth. So thank you in your writing for doing that for all of us who enjoy your words. Well, you know, you said it originally, you didn't really have a big passion for cars, but you've acquired one through learning about uh, Mr. Bernard. Is there a, a key point in that learning process that you knew that, you know what, maybe I am a car guy in a little way after all? Yeah. I, when I first started interviewing John Barnard, I was at his luxurious house overlooking uh, Lake Geneva. Uh, he's made himself a pot of money out of the Formula One game. I'd been I was recording the conversations. And I was typing what he was writing at the same time. And I, I was about an hour and a half into the interview and it dawned on me I had not understood anything of what he'd been saying. <laughs> and I was terrified by the prospect of writing this book. But what happened was, uh, is, is that I unpicked it bit by bit and took it all apart uh, and took some courage to call him up and say, look, John, I'm sorry, I didn't quite get this. I would always research it as far as I could. And in fact, that would not get me to an explanation. And mm -hmm. given his due for a man that has a ferocious reputation for having no patience for, for idiots, uh, he, was very, <laughs> he was very good. And I began to learn. And once you begin to learn the skill and dexterity and genius that goes into putting together a top sports car. You can't help but admire the whole world of motoring and motorsport in particular. Oh, no doubt. And John Bernard, when you think about what he's brought to the world of motorsport, we take for granted now the uh, carbon fiber monocoque and paddle shifting, which is now migrated into cars. I have a car I drive that has paddle shifting. Even my wife's SUV, you can shift it over and, and tip the the shift lever forward or back, kind of a throttle shift or a paddle shift kind of concept there. So 
but I have heard that about him, that he's, he's one of those geniuses that operates at a different level than most of us, and he knows his game so well. So that kind of leads me into the next question. As you were putting this book together, I would, uh, I would think there was some challenges, maybe even a couple of times you felt like you were kind of failing yourself and your readers here as you put this whole thing together. Tell us about one of those times where this was really, really a daunting task, because when you take on a, a guy like Bernard and his, his prowess and his knowledge, uh, it's got to put some challenges in front of you. Well, it certainly uh, uh, did, especially as I came from a standing start when I approached him first. And he said, what do you know about Formula One when I was approaching <laughs> him to uh, write the book? And I said, well, not really anything. He was a bit startled. And he said, well, mm. why do you think you can write this book? And I said, I don't understand what you've done. But I know something from my own career that my own children didn't really understand what I did in television news and things like that. They don't tend to engage with the detail of what their parents did. Uh, And the result is they probably haven't understood what you do. I said, because I'm a newbie to it and because I will learn, I will write a book that your children will know what you didn't understood. And of course, after that, there was a whole collection of moments when I find myself sitting bolt upright in bed thinking, I can't do this book. This is <laughs> completely beyond me. But in time, one of the things that really helped was that he would sketch some of his explanations. Mm-hmm. And I just began to understand the general principle that this mm-hmm. wasn't as complicated as I thought it was, that really, once you get past the jargon and you're not getting so far into the detail that you have to use advanced mathematics, which obviously he would have to do doing carbon fiber, I suddenly began to dawn on me that I could explain this. And when that happened, it was a little bit of a eureka moment for me, but because it released so much pressure, I thought I can do this and I can make it interesting. I was terrified it was going to be boring, but I found a way to to describe his creative process, how he comes up with these brilliant ideas. And, and I did it literally by interviewing him, saying, then, why did you think that? What made you think that? What forced you to do that? It was that process of talking to him about what forced him to solve the problem he was trying to solve that helped me work out uh, how to write the book. My great takeaway from this, and you dropped some wonderful golden nuggets for us here, is for anybody in any situation where they don't know what they're looking at or they're trying to learn something is, is ask a lot of questions. And a lot of people are afraid to ask questions because it makes them look a little unknowledgeable or stupid or something like that. So they feel like they have to sit there and nod and go, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. When really they're going, what on earth is this guy telling me? I'm going to have to go figure it out later. And I think too many people don't ask enough questions and put themselves in that vulnerable position. And maybe it feels vulnerable to them, but I think for the recipient, it doesn't feel vulnerable at all because most people I found love to share their information with you. Would you agree? I agree entirely. Uh, It's exactly that. And I found that with John Barnard, I was too embarrassed, even though I had uh, confessed my ignorance uh, earlier on, to keep asking questions uh, and indeed repeating the same questions sometimes when I still hadn't understood the answer. I I began to develop a technique for doing that in which I kind of turned the blame back onto him. I would say, John, uh, thank you for all the time you can have for that explanation, but you haven't really made it clear to me. My mission is to make it clear to everyone. Let's Uh, go through it again. Can you sketch this out? And by doing that, I felt less bad about it, and he felt more motivated to explain things more clearly. (laughs) He did. Didn't give you that that famous furled brow like 
You're going to make me explain this again to you? What are you, daft, young man? <laughs> uh, yeah, he did sometimes. I mean, he, he was known in the paddock as the Prince of Darkness. Because yes. He was such a frightening individual. But then he was working with people who should have known what they needed to know. Right. Uh, they were at the top of their profession. Uh, but his mission uh, with this book was to explain what he did and to correct a lot of misapprehensions that have been published uh, around the world about who did what first in motorsport and Formula One. You know, I always like to ask guests about an aha moment in their career, but I think I want to go down this path a little bit more about John. After spending so much time with him, what was kind of an aha for you about him as the man? Because known as the Prince of Darkness and, and a tough guy and a a driving person and someone who just committed so much of his life to what he does. Uh, what were kind of some aha moments that you came to a revolution about him uh, and who he was as a person? Learning who he was as a person was the key. And I think I could say, and I, he might agree, I don't know, he doesn't often agree with me, but uh, <laughs> he, he might agree that uh, he learned a lot about himself doing this book. Because uh, where, I, where I felt strongest and safest was not on the technical stuff at first. Because I was all about the creative process, I wanted to know what his childhood was like, how he became who he became. And so I started off by saying, John, I want to first of all talk about your childhood so I can get to understand you. He couldn't see the relevance of it at all. Mm, and of I course went, not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I went through his childhood in a lot of detail, and, and it took years, actually, to drag out the stories that are in the book now and to help him realize just how important his childhood was and that really for me was an aha moment because i then began to learn about the person i could move away from the myth and the legend and the rather fearsome reputation uh, and laugh with him about childhood stupidities and and see how important and this but this is what makes him so special in formula one how important his family was to him first of all his parents he was a single child and then later on uh, his own family uh, that, uh, you know, his wife and three children and how they were the focus of everything, which I think in driven people who are uh, launching stellar careers, families often get pushed to the side. That never happened with John Barnard. And that's the thing I admired most about him, apart from his creative genius. So you, in essence, kind of became a therapist for him, it sounds like, in a way, because to get somebody to sit and talk and go back in their childhood, especially someone like him who kind of says, why are we talking about this? This is about motorsport and innovation and the things that I did for that, that whole industry. Uh, it, do, would you say there's any, were any aha moments for him as he walked you back through that childhood? Anything that he kind of paused and went, wow, I never really saw it my life from that perspective. I think there were quite a few for him. I don't think he would admit it, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm pretty sure there were. Uh, first of all, uh, the big aha moment for him was beginning to realize how important his childhood had been to him. He had never really seen it in that context. Fought me for quite a while as I insisted how important that side, that whole side was. Just the whole experience of laying his life out to a stranger and looking at it from a completely different point of view is something he'd never done before and didn't think it would be a requirement for the book, hence his resistance. And so therapy is probably a bit too strong a word, but it had a therapeutic effect, I think. And I, I found him mellowing over that time. That, of course, comes with age. And we were writing it over five or six years, uh, and he's now 72. So I think it had a positive effect on him. Uh, Very he nice. might tell me I'm talking rubbish, but that's my feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about you today, so that, that's all that matters. 
It, it, what what makes you are what are you proudest about accomplishing this book? Because when listeners go, wait, it took you five or six years to put this book together. Oh my gosh, I mean, it's a huge amount of time. So, looking at the finished product, what makes you the proudest about it? I would say that it's when people come up to me and say how they opened the book and they were hooked by it. Now that's really important to me because because I was uh, warned that it was going to be, be very difficult to make this uh, subject a page turner. I mean, John Barnard was not known for his sense of humour. He was not known for being a, a character. He was known for being shy and severe. And he can and when he's talking about the technical material, he can be very dull unless you are an absolute lover of technology. Uh, but I think I the. The apparent fact that I've made this into a bit of a page turner. The biggest compliment was when the proofreader in New Zealand, uh, such as the way that books work now, you don't have to be in the same country. <laughs> yeah. Them, complained to the publisher saying, look, I'm having real trouble proofreading this book because I want to find out what happens next. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so well, that that's, is, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's the proudest, the thing I'm proudest about. Very nice. Very nice. I'm not sure if I can get an answer out of this with you or not, because again, you've not grown up being a car fanatic, but I always ask my guests about their first really special car, the, the first vehicle that had some great meaning for them. Is there one of those in your life? Uh, there is. Yes. It's a VW Beetle. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was because it was the car that I had in Beirut and I had a, a, an absurd faith in it. And there was a time once when I had, I, you know, I'd watched the, uh, Herbie, the love bug and even though by then I was 20, 21, I still had a sort of romantic notion of the extraordinary capacity that this car might have, which, of course, it didn't really. And I was driving down the outside. I was sitting in a queue and I was in a hurry to get to the university where I was working. It was a long queue going down a hill. And I could see that at the bottom was a bomb crater, which was filled with water. It must have been a big shell that had landed overnight. And I thought, <laughs> stupidly, I thought a VW, I could drive down there and float across that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I went right down the outside. My wife at the time was somewhat upset trying to persuade me to stop. And I drove straight into the bomb crater and went straight across it and drove off the other side. No way. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I know it's ridiculous. It's incredibly dangerous. I'd never do it again. It's probably the most stupid thing I ever did. But it made me just never forget the wonder of, of a VW Beetle. <laughs> oh, that is the most amazing Beetle story I've ever heard. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's interesting how cars do make us feel safe and uh, and not so vulnerable, which is kind of silly in a way, and especially when you're in a civil war where they're dropping bombs. I mean, that VW wouldn't have a chance in, in hell to, to survive a bomb blast. But I think it's like when people are on roadways and they they get angry and they have road rage and they say things to people and do things in the protectional shell of their car. Well, in reality, it's not so safe most of the time to do that. Wow. What a story. A little VW bug. Well, was there a car you've let go that you wish you still had in your life? Yeah, I had a a really beat up old Land Rover Series 3 with a long wheelbase, a sort of typical farmer's uh, vehicle put together by a friend of mine. It had an old crane engine in it, which, uh, when you were doing 60 miles an hour, was so loud and deafening you couldn't talk to each other. And it was a real pig to start it. It was so hard to start it. Uh, and in the end, I sold it because I, on winter mornings it was so hard to start. And I got a call back from the owner who said, uh, Look, I, uh, uh, 
you've sold me this car, but I can't start it. I said, oh, well, I know they're really notoriously difficult to start. It's why I sold it. <laughs> and he said, no. And I said, look, you'll fall in love with it anyway. And I used it for four or five years. And I still wish I had that. Now, there were times I could, you know, you'd be driving somewhere, you'd see someone in trouble. You could, they'd gone into a ditch or something. You could pull them out. You could do stuff with the car that right. you can't do with most. That's the car I most regret losing. Well, those have become such kind of collectible, iconic cars as well. And of course, caveat emptor, when you buy an old Range Rover, you better be prepared that it's not going to be perfect in many ways, but uh, very cool. Well, this book, again, I'll remind our our listeners, and we're recording this show at the end of July. The book is coming out in the United States in August. So by the time this airs, the, the book's been out and people can get their hands on it. The Perfect Car, a biography of John Bernard. Um, when you finished this book, what excited you the most about it? The reaction to it, really. Uh, it's still early days, as it's only just come out uh, in, in England. But I've seen some very good reviews, for, and people have come up to me and contacted me through Facebook and have said how much they've enjoyed it. Uh, and also, there's a very good, uh, there's a series of uh, good uh, American sites. He did a lot of work in America. For example, he, um, the carbon fiber revolution was started in Britain, and John Barnard uh, and Ron Dennis, well, John Barnard particularly, built the first carbon fiber car, but they couldn't have done it without Hercules in Utah, the rocket builders, because they went went around all the British companies, but none of the British companies, they said, you're just trying to run before you can walk. This is impossible. We couldn't do this. You're never going to be able to. And they arrived in Hercules, and they got that wonderful American can-do attitude. Yeah, sure, we'll have a go at this, (laughs) and uh, made it happen, and that that's one of, and of course he was also with Bell's Parnelli Jones for a long time and did a lot of great work with them, and particularly the Chap- with Chaparral, uh, he created the 2K, which was the IndyCar's first ground effect car, driven yeah. by Johnny Rutherford to victory in 1980 at the Indy 500 and the Kart Championship, and is still considered one of the classics of IndyCar, and he built that in the front room of his father's house, of his childhood home. Uh, wow, that's where, that's where he designed it. So. And also, of course, there's the fact that his Ferrari 641 is on the wall of New York's Museum of Modern Art. No other yeah. car has been so honored. It sits up there. It's been there for over 30 years. And they told, the director, curator there told me that they'll never move it. Why would you move it? Uh, right. and, and so it's good to see that he has some presence in America, too. Oh, absolutely. A, a huge impact in the, uh, on many parts of motorsport here in the U.S. And I think that's what's so incredible for people when someone like John Bernard, who Somewhat works in the background. I mean, when you look at motor racing, you focus on team marks and the drivers for the most part, sometimes the team owners, but all the talent behind the scenes that makes those cars do what they do. And a person like John Bernard, that's what makes your book so important and interesting, I believe. Here's a very introspective question about you, Nick. If you were manifested into a vehicle, what would Nick be and why? <laughs> you know, I saw this on your list and I, don't, and I hadn't really thought it through. I think I probably would be some form of a beaten up old Land Rover <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'm not fast and sporty. Uh, I'm reasonably broad and tough, and I don't give up, and uh, Land Rovers don't give up. And I remember being uh, working as a journalist in the, in the desert in the Western Sahara and just seeing how wonderful they were dealing with those conditions. So I feel like a Land Rover. Nicely said. I think that fits you perfectly. Well, Nick, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Hey, Cars Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. 
I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft seat covers. They'll protect your seats from the daily abuse of pets, children, weekend adventures, and even those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. All Covercraft seat covers are easy-on, easy-off design that are machine washable. You can choose from many fabric options, colors, and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicles. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom-tailored to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim-weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garages built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Okay, Nick, we are back. Back from the Sahara, driving that uh, Range Rover across the dunes. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Probably it's safer with a stick shift uh, or what we call a manual gearbox. You've got more control using a a manual gearbox. Well, especially when you're driving through bomb craters in a Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, yeah. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Never do it with an automatic. uh, No, you need to be able to downshift and get out of that crater. So. Yeah, you, you know, it's pretty cool. You're like the only guy I've ever met that's driven through a bomb crater in a Volkswagen Beetle. That's, that's pretty probably, impressive. Probably because no one else survived or was stupid <laughs> enough to do it. Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say you're brave and adventurous. That's what, And I'm sticking to that story. Thanks. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over time with all the books you've written, the things you've done? I think it's getting enough sleep. If you got, uh, it's really important. If I don't, if I can't sleep, I can't. If I don't sleep, get seven hours, I can't work. But I now have got a situation where I work from home and I always get enough sleep. Yeah, nice. You know, I've talked to people who say, "Oh, I can get by on three, four hours of sleep," and I'm so jealous of them because when when I think about all the time, and I, I maybe I shouldn't say it this way, time wasted sleeping. But you know what I mean. Things you could yeah. be doing when you're asleep. But I'm the same way. I need at least seven hours. But I had the great drag racer Don Garlitz 
on this show, who is one of those guys that could get away with a little bit of sleep. And his quote was, there'll be plenty of time to sleep when you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) But I believe Margaret Thatcher slept three or four hours a night and she did pretty well. So Uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing woman. Uh, How about a resource? Is there a a specific resource that you really think would uh, benefit the Cars listeners? Well, I have to say, uh, and this is probably we shot down for saying it, I would say Wikipedia. And the reason why I say that, because it's often criticized by experts, but it's really the excellent place to start your research. But it's continually updated. Sometimes it gets stuff wrong. But it's very easy to find out when it's got wrong. And, often, and it, because it's often written by experts, uh, it really is a, a great resource. And I found it invaluable uh, during the research for this book as a kicking off point, as a starting off point, or just for simple explanations of concepts that I hadn't understood. And then, right. of course, you take it further. You don't rely on Wikipedia. But I would say uh, Wikipedia, don't, don't scorn it. Embrace it. It really is a remarkable thing. You know, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people do pick on it. And I I always kind of furl my brow and go, well, I get it. Not everything is always accurate, but I found it exactly what you've said as a great starting point, a kicking off point. And then it leads you down the road to other things. Like if you look up a car, you can find who designed it and then go study that person or the engine in that vehicle, or whatever it might be. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Good old Wikipedia. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, the volume of information that sits out there for free. Exactly. It's extraordinary. And I do contribute to it. I felt good. They kept on cut these signs kept on coming up on my screen (laughs) saying, you know, do you want to contribute? And I thought, I really should. So I've, I've begun to contribute to it because it's such a great resource. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, if I could wave a magic wand and arrange for you to sit down and have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would that person be? I would say it had to be Enzo Ferrari, because behind those sunglasses, there are just so many secrets. And he took to the grave so much information that so many people still want to learn about Ferrari and the world and the chicanery of uh, Formula One and how much influence Ferrari had over changing the rules and bending the rules and just so many secrets uh, from such a remarkable man who came from such humble beginnings and did so brilliantly well. You know, yeah, uh, that would be pretty incredible. I just had uh, on my show Julia Taylor Stanley, who produced a film about Ferrari and racing in the 50s and uh, what it was like back then and, and all the danger and everything and touched on Ferrari and his drive to win and finally winning the championship with the American driver, Phil Hill, in 61. But uh, yeah, Enzo Ferrari would be something else. You know, that makes me think of another question here for you, and that is, do you see yourself writing another automotive-related book in the future? Yes. I mean, having spent all this time uh, learning about it, it would be kind of dumb not to, really. <laughs> and there, uh, I've been, uh, there's been a couple of approaches that I can't go into now, and they may come to nothing. But yes, I've, I've got into this world now. I've begun to love it, and uh, I think I, I will definitely do another auto, uh, auto sport book. Very cool. Well, welcome to the world of inspiring automotive enthusiasts. We are happy to have you here, Nick. <laughs> Very yeah, fun place pleasure. to be. You yeah. bet. Now, of course, I remind our listeners, this book, The Perfect Car, Biography of John Bernard, is an awesome book. It should be on your shelf if you love automobiles. But is there another book you might share with us, Nick, that you think our listeners would enjoy reading? Yeah, I'm going to take you away from the world of uh, autosport, I'm afraid. I hope you don't mind. But I'm going to take you into what was the autosport of its day. And that's back into the history of the 
of Nelson's Navy. And there's a man called Patrick O'Brien who wrote a book called The Far Side of the World, which was made into a film starring Russell Crowe. Quite a good film. But the series of books he's written about that time, about the fastest ships, the best fighting ships of of their time, are, in my opinion, the best historical novels ever written. They're absolutely superb. And I really would recommend Patrick O'Brien and his whole Aubrey Maturin uh, series, uh, and especially The Far Side of the World. Very nice. Well, listeners, you can find all these great resources Nick has shared on his Cars Yeah show notes page. Just go to CarsYeah.com, type in Nick Skeens, S-K-E-E-N-S, and those pages will pop up with references to these very, very intriguing books. I'm going to have to get my hands on those. I've not heard about those. Well, we are up to the checkered flag, Nick. Now, I know you live on a boat, on a barge. We're talking today uh, via Skype, and you're uh, looking out your window in the water, and uh, finally the heat wave there in the UK broke a little bit, so it's cooled down for you, which is nice. But today I'm going to buy you a very cool collector car. Maybe uh, I'll even include a garage for you to park this car in. But there's a couple rules. You can't sell it to buy a bunch of other cool cars or other cool things with. I want you to drive this car and enjoy it. So uh, get yourself something you think would be wonderful to drive through the English countryside. What can I buy you today and why? Oh, I want a, a Lamborghini Countach. Uh, oh. <laughs> if you don't mind. Just the one will be fine. and the garage. Just one. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Because I remember first seeing it on the London streets when I was a kid, about 75, I think it must have seen it, maybe 76, and it just took my breath away. It just seemed like a car from an an alien world. Yes. And it's so gorgeous. Now, I know Lamborghinis have all sorts of reputations for being difficult to handle, but I don't mind that. I would absolutely love it. It was a car car of my dreams then, so far beyond my dreams, of course, at that time, and probably will ever remain so, except luckily I have this great friend called Mark Green in America who's going to buy one for me. (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) Marvelous. No problem. I love buying cars for people. The Lamborghini Countach, he has an absolutely phenomenal car, and I had the the pleasure of visiting the Lamborghini factory not too long ago, and they had the first one sitting there in their little museum, and... The lady told me a story that was walking me through there about the name, and I've never been able to verify this, but I figure she works there. She said that when they first built that car, they took it out into the Italian countryside for a test drive, and they stopped the car for some reason, and a farmer with a little horse-drawn cart went by and yelled, Countach, which was a word of exclamation in Italian or like excitement or something like that, and when the driver came back and said, I have the name for our car, uh, I'd like to hear from any uh, listeners out there if they've heard anything to the contrary. But I would love to buy you an old Lamborghini. That would be great. Maybe the old original Periscopo version, which is my favorite, the first version that came out with it, they, before they started putting all those bulges and bumps on them and things oh, like yeah. that. Absolutely. Yeah, just that, that wedge. Was yeah, I absolutely love that story about the farmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. The other thing she told me, was the car in the factory there was green. And she said, if you look at this little area under the hood, you can see some red paint. When they built the first one, Ferruccio Lamborghini took it to a car show and it was red. And then he had to go to another car show and he wanted the world to think there was more than one. So they painted the car green and took it to another show. And they were thinking about how to restore the car. Should they keep it green or should they take it back to red? And they, they couldn't decide. I don't know if they've restored it yet, but 
I thought that was another interesting story. Carol Shelby was known for that when he built his first Shelby Cobras uh, of changing the color and taking it to other shows. So uh, a little one of those tricks that manufacturers do. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, I think you'd look great in a Lamborghini Countach, so I'll get to work on that. Nick, you've taken me on an awesome ride today. Thanks for for calling in and sharing your stories and sharing this wonderful new book, The Perfect Car, a biography of John Bernard. Absolutely fantastic. Could you offer us a little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you hop into that Lamborghini and speed off into the sunset? I think it fits a Lamborghini. And that is simply, whatever you do as a job, enjoy it. If you're doing what makes you happy, then you're rich, whether you make lots of money or not. Ah, nicely said. Very nicely said. That's what Car Jazz is all about. And uh, what's the best way for our listeners to follow along with you and get their hands on a copy of your book? Uh, well, I think uh, you can. it's available for sale on Amazon, so you should be able to find it there when it comes out. Uh, in, I think you can pre-order it now. Uh, mm-hmm. And as, as for me, I just look up my name. I think I'll pop up and you'll – I use social uh, – I do use social media, but I'm not into Twitter and Instagram and all those sort of things. So just Google my name and you'll probably find out where to, where to find out what I'm up to. Absolutely. The famous Google. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to all these great things Nick has shared on his show notes page here at the Cars Yow website. Nick, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You take care of your cars. But who takes care of your investments? Tune-ups aren't just for engines. Updating your financial plan is important, too. Your GPS may take you from A to B, but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified, and he's a car guy too. Learn more at chrisvkimble.com or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA SIPC. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.